Today on Blue 58, what if we did a preview but didn't talk about the other team? That feels like the right approach as the Packers try to figure things out against the Jets. So let's try to figure things out for the Packers. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. How confident do you feel about the Packers right now? Right at this moment, how do you feel about where the Packers are as a team? For me, it's, it's pretty low. My confidence level in this team is, is pretty low. I just don't feel great about the Packers right now. But I would also say I feel like I don't really know who the Packers are. And that's kind of been a theme here early in the season as we've talked about the team. There is a breaking in period. There's a time when you're figuring out what this team is, what they can do, what they can't do. And it feels like we are still in a position where anything could happen in any game at any time. The Packers' offensive line could be great. They could manhandle somebody. They could take care of business for Aaron Rodgers, for the running game. They could be completely bad. Royce Newman could be exposed. Things could just not go well. It wouldn't surprise me to see Romeo Dobbs go off for 150 yards. It would not surprise me to see Romeo Dobbs not get a target for a half. It wouldn't surprise me to see the same from Aaron Jones, for him to run for however many hundred yards or just go without a carry for a good portion of the game. And I think if you look at our polls, jumping way ahead from where we usually go with these previews, people generally are in kind of the same boat. The overall vibe around this team is extremely negative. Entering week six, the approval rating for the team as a whole was 10.8%. If you think that sounds pretty low, you are right. That is literally the lowest number I've ever recorded, 2019 to present. The approval rating for the team as a whole has never been lower. Same goes for Aaron Rodgers. He's pulling at an 11.6% this week. That's down almost 20% from last week, which was among the lowest he's ever pulled at. Now it is the lowest it's ever been. No one has ever felt worse about Aaron Rodgers than right now, or collectively we've never felt worse about Aaron Rodgers than right now. And Rich Bisaccia plugging along with a 90-plus percent approval rating. Not everything is terrible. And really, whether or not things are terrible is is kind of up in the air. We're still figuring things out. But either way, I kind of don't want to talk about anything but the Packers right now. We got a question after the last game that I didn't have a chance to get to in the last podcast, but Canadian Packers fan asked, do you think there's any value in seeing a loss like this, like the Giants game, as a kick in the pants for the entire team to be better, or are we past that? I want to say the Packers could use a collective kick in the rear to get things in gear, but I also am always skeptical about how that works for a professional football team. I mean, it's it's your job to get it together week in and week out to play well, And if the Packers need a loss to make themselves get it together, I wonder if this is a team worth saving anyway. But it is an opportunity when you have a really embarrassing loss to say, okay, what's going on here? What do we need to fix? Because this is not working. So I think we need to talk about what needs to work instead. And I think a preview episode is a good time to do that. You know, I've been pretty open in the past about previews being a challenge for me. As somebody who wants to cover the Packers well, it's hard to do a good preview. 
there's so much information to cover. What do you focus on? How do you make sure you just get all the injuries sorted out on the opposing team? Make sure you're not missing anybody who's going to be missing on Sunday, things like that. It's hard to do a good preview. But sometimes it's important to do something a little bit different, and I think this week is one of those times. Because this week I don't think the opponent really matters because this game is all about the Packers anyway. It's not about who their opponent is or what they need to do to attack their opponents. It's what the Packers need to do to get themselves figured out. It's all about the Packers changing. Can they change? Will they change? And what do they need to change? Can and will, I think, are open questions. Can the Packers change? I think they're capable, but can Matt LaFleur and his staff implement it? Can Joe Barry and his staff implement it? Can Aaron Rodgers change? Those are big questions. Will they change? Another big question, because every team has obvious things they need to work on. Not everybody gets them sorted out. What they need to do, though, is a different thing. So I want to talk about what I would like to see from the Packers and what I think we need to see from the Packers this weekend to see if they're pointed in the right direction. It's a big deal whether or not they win this weekend, obviously. They need to win. I want them to win, and I think they will. But I think even bigger than that is taking steps in the right direction. It would be a little bit different if it was a team other than the Jets that you found, you know, that it was like a a top-tier contender. Say the Packers were playing the Philadelphia Eagles this weekend. And they play a tough game. They play well. They put some of their issues behind them, but they still lose. I think you feel, it's not, I don't know if I believe in moral victories, but you feel better about that loss. If the Packers play well and do the right things and still lose against the Jets, you have a harder time feeling good about that. But I still think it is a bigger deal whether or not they are taking steps in right direction. So what steps do I think they need to take? Let's start with what needs to change on offense. I think this needs to be a, a different sort of offensive approach. I don't know if run heavy is the right way to do it, but I think the kind of run that they, they do needs to change. No misery asked in our Discord server after the last game. If the RPO offense lead to, leads to this death spiral of checkdowns in so many games and the Packers are quick in abandoning the run, is this really the best offense for the Packers with players they have like Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Jones, and A.J. Dillon? And how can the Packers get out of this spiral in the midst of the game? Now, Looking at some numbers on this, the great Dusty Evely does a great breakdown on RPOs and how they work and what's working for the Packers each and every week. By and large, things are working pretty well for the Packers, but against the Giants, it didn't go so well. However, I think given that the league has had time to absorb what the Packers are doing and evaluate it, I think, as we talked about in the last episode, you're putting yourself in a position because running an RPO-based offense puts you in the position where the defense can dictate to you what you do. Because so much of RPO stuff is dictated on what the defense is doing pre-snap, and if the defense can get into a pre-snap look where they can make you do what they want you to do, that's already a win for the defense. So much of defense is trying to do that anyway, trying to get you to react to things that may or may not be happening. The entire goal of something like simulated pressure is just that. The defense is trying to get you to react to something you think is coming and may not actually be happening. Mike Zimmer made a career out of standing two guys on either side of your center and saying, what do you think? You like your chances? Are you going to pick up these two guys as they come through the A-gaps? 
or are they coming at all? What do you think? And the degree to which the opposing quarterback reacts to that goes a long way towards determining whether or not Mike Zimmer's defenses were effective. Running something like an RPO-based offense again and again and again gets you into a position where the defense can just say, all right, you're going to make a decision based on what we're doing pre-snap. Here we are, eight guys in the box. Play your numbers game. What are you going to do? I think that puts the Packers in a position where they need to stop making pre-snap decisions that way. They need to come out and just say, okay, it's going to be simple run-based stuff. We're either going to run, we're going to run our power, we're going to run outside zone, we're going to run whatever, and we're either going to run or we're going to pass. We're not going to try to figure it out at the line of scrimmage. We need to just count on our talent and execute. I think that's where the Packers need to be for a while. I'd also like to see the Packers change things up a little bit to get a little bit more diversity in their targets in the passing game. Now, broadly speaking, they have spread the ball around fairly well in their offense. Plenty of guys are getting targets, but it's the amount of targets sometimes that concerns me. This past Sunday, Romeo Dobbs was a distant third in targets. Robert Tunyon was fourth. Together, they had nine. Now, Alan Lazard had eight, and Randall Cobb had 13. I'm not saying that Dobbs is better than Lazard or even Cobb, or that Tunyon is better than Cobb or Lazard, but getting more guys involved in the passing game in meaningful ways can only be a good thing. And speaking of getting guys involved on offense, what about a guy like Josiah DeGuara? We had another question after Sunday's game. Carl Anderson writes in from Sweden, What's up with Josiah DeGuara nowadays? Seems his snap count has gone down this season. Is it due to more use of Tyler Davis, more pony personnel, or both, or is it a both-and sort of factor? So answering part of that question, the back half first, I don't think pony personnel has much to do with it. In 2021, DeGuara had six backfield snaps through week five. He ended up playing about eight and a half snaps in the backfield for the season. So it's not if you're looking for a comparison point for how much he'd be playing in the backfield, that's it. And presumably if the Packers are doing a bunch of pony pack package stuff, putting Dylan and Jones in the backfield together, the opportunities for him to be in the backfield are going to go down. But that hasn't been the case in 2022 through five weeks. He's played 22 snaps in the backfield. About 17.5% of his snaps have been in the backfield so far. So he's not losing snaps there. But as Carl points out, he is losing snaps to Tyler Davis. So far, Davis has 84 snaps on the year, and DeGuara has 59. Week one, Davis had 15 snaps, and DeGuara had 15. Dead even. Week two, Davis had 21, and DeGuara had 15. Week three, Davis 19, DeGuara 9. Week four, 21 for Davis and 11 for DeGuara. And week five, DeGuara finally beats him out as Davis has eight snaps, and DeGuara has nine. Now, the big question here is why? Why is Davis getting more snaps than DeGuara? And I don't know if there's a really good answer for that. And I say that as somebody who likes Tyler Davis a lot. I don't think there's much that Davis is doing so far this year that DeGuara can't do. And I think there's potential that DeGuara could be more useful as a receiver, especially as the Packers are running their offense this year. Or maybe at least he could be useful in ways that Davis can't be. For instance, can you envision Tyler Davis catching balls out of the backfield? Outside of something like those little um, rollout, you know, bootleg sort of things that they do and then dump it off short, 
if you count that as coming out of the backfield, maybe Davis can do something there. But running stuff as a fullback, catching screens, catching stuff out into the flat, I think DeGuara has an advantage there because I think he's a more explosive athlete than Davis is, and Davis is a pretty good athlete. All of Davis's tight end receiving type stuff seems to be pretty old school type stuff, more vertical, getting down the field, you know, running from an inline sort of position. DeGuara can line up in the fullback and get to the flat, or as a fullback in the backfield and get into the flat. He could, you know, perform as an H-back, run stuff behind the line of scrimmage, screens. I think there's an opportunity to get him more involved in the offense and get a little bit more athletic as a result. I'd at least like to try it. We've seen what Davis can do. Let's see what DeGuara can do. On defense, there's some things that need to change too. Starting with hybridizing the defense a little bit. Acme Packing Company's Justice Mosqueda laid out a pretty compelling case this week for how the Packers could hybridize their defense and make things a little bit simpler while keeping guys that they like on the field. I think a big reason, and Justice seems to hint at this as well, that the Packers haven't done as well with Devondre Campbell, or maybe that Campbell hasn't done quite as well for the Packers this year, is that his role is different. Last year, he was the only linebacker on the field for most of the time. That was a staple of the Brandon Staley branch of the Vic Fangio tree. They call it a penny front a a lot of the time. And if you listen to the Acme Packing Company podcast or family of podcasts there, Justice hammers this this all the time. The Packers aren't running penny as much. The Packers aren't running penny as much, blah, blah, blah. A penny look is three defensive linemen, three linebackers, and five defensive back. And two of those three linebackers are going to be edge rushers. Your third is going to be a traditional inside linebacker, usually right in the middle of the formation. And Campbell did that a lot last year, and it allowed him to flow sideline to sideline a lot while there were guys in front of him soaking up a lot of blocks. This year, it's been a lot more traditional nickel. The Packers going with two defensive linemen, two edge rushers, and two inside linebackers. And those inside linebackers have been Devondre Campbell and Quay Walker. And that changes Campbell's responsibilities significantly. He can't just be the guy who's cleaning up everything. He's got to work with Quay Walker to read and react, take on blocks differently, things like that. Now, it would be simple to just say, well, go back to what you did last year. The rub is that the Packers want Quay Walker on the field, and why not? He's a great athlete. He's been successful by and large when he's been on the field. So what Justice proposes is this, and I really like this idea, a penny front, but with nickel personnel. Two defensive linemen, kick Rashawn Gary inside, line him up over a guard or, or something, standing up on three, three-point stand, something like that. Either way, Quay Walker either on the outside or roaming around, and then Devondre Campbell is the single true inside linebacker. You're doing what worked well last year with your alignment, and you're getting your personnel on the field that you like this year. It seems like a win-win. Related to that, the Packers need opportunities for their defensive backs to make more plays. Now, we track ball hawks here. Ball hawks are any play on the ball. Sack, forced fumble, interception, pass defensed. As a defense, it's been a slow start this year, but the biggest, slowest start has been in in the defensive backfield. Last year, as a team, Packers defensive backs recorded 74 ball hawks, so passes defensed, interceptions, sacks. Primarily passes, defense, and interceptions. This year, as an entire secondary, they're on pace for just over 20. Nobody is getting their hands on the ball in the secondary. Whatever you do up front, you need to put your guys in the back end in position to make more plays on the ball. 
because so far it hasn't happened very often. And maybe it's just freeing them to be more aggressive. Maybe it's encouraging them to be more aggressive. Maybe that's it's playing, you know, man-to-man coverages that allow them to be more aggressive versus the softer zone that encourages them to keep everything in front of them and then get to the ball afterwards. I don't know whatever it's going to take, but the Packers defensive backs and, and defense as a whole needs to be getting their hands on the ball more. Finally, the Packers really need to think about their size on defense. If Jonathan Ford is going to be on the roster, he should play here at some point. And if he's not going to play last week when you know that the Giants want to run the ball, why is he on the roster at all? Especially in a situation where Devontae Wyatt is hurt. Now it looks like Wyatt is improving for this week, so things may be a little bit better, different on the defensive front. But Ford needs to pull his weight if he's going to be on the 53-man roster, and there's a lot of weight to pull there. I also think it would be worth it to give Chris Slayton and Jack Heflin a look up front, because if we're going to be running two defensive linemen looks at a, you know, running your penny at a nickel personnel, you're going to need some more beef up front. I've been a pretty staunch Dean Lowry defender over the years because the data shows, the the raw box score stuff shows that he can get after the quarterback. But given how the Packers use their defensive linemen, he's too big a liability against the run to really have him out there. He's just too light. And maybe he needs to play in like a 4-3 type defense somewhere else. I don't know. But right now it's just not working. And I wonder if the same sort of thing is going to end up being true about Jaron Reed, who hasn't really had a spectacular start to the 2022 season either. I would like to see the Packers explore a little bit more size on the defensive line. And I think that starts with Jonathan Ford since he's on the 53. And it's going to extend out to Chris Slayton and Jack Heflin too. I think they need a look as well. I thought it was worth taking a look at last time the Packers and Jets play just to preserve one thing from our traditional preview. Um, it, <laughs> 2018 was a bad season, wasn't it? 6-9-1 and one, the Packers record that year. And they end up playing the Jets in week 16 in one of the more meaningless, meaningless games that you're ever going to see. And it's just kind of a byproduct of the NFL schedule that you end up playing meaningless games. But this one was especially bad because you've got the Jets coming in at 3-11, and 11, and Todd Bowles is going to get fired any day now. You got the Packers coming in at five, nine, and one, five, eight, and one. I guess actually because they're they're going to win this game and then lose the next week to to Detroit. Mike McCarthy is gone. Everybody knows that Joe Philbin is only he's only going to be around till the end of the season. Even though the Packers did end up interviewing for him for their head coaching job, uh, I wonder what that interview was like. By the way, if you if you know. I mean, they had to have known, right? They didn't want Joe Philbin. They didn't want, I guess, McCarthy Light as their next coach. They had to have known that already. What does a courtesy interview look like, knowing what we know about NFL head coach interviews? These things are intense. They're demanding. What's that like for a guy that you know that you don't really want to hire? Anyway, Packers come into Week 16 knowing that they're going nowhere fast. They've got two games left to get to the end of the season. Jets come in a little bit more beat up than the Packers, but hey, that's the Jets, and they're coming to the end of their head coach's tenure. And what we get is an 82-point game, 44-38 to 38 the final score. 
the Packers had a, a big game on offense. A bunch of guys had career days. Equinemia St. Brown has a career high in 94 receiving yards. Uh, Jake Kumaro scores a touchdown, big long catch and run. He ends up with a career high, like 63, 64 yards, something like that. Packers have a, a great performance. Aaron, Aaron Rodgers throws 55 passes, ends up touching the ball on 64 of the Packers' 90 offensive plays. Pretty good. The defense was bad, uh, and the special teams was almost worse. Uh, Sam Darnold, the Jets quarterback, had the best game of his career, passer rating well over 120, I think like 128.4 or something like that. Still a career high for him, 341 yards, career high for him. One of the only three touchdown games of his career. The Mike Pettin era was not off to an auspicious start in Green Bay. It wasn't great. Uh, but the special teams were even worse. They gave up a 99-yard touchdown return to Andre Roberts. Uh, they also gave up a near-touchdown return with just over a minute left after the Packers scored uh, to go up um, to set up the game-tying field goal by the Jets. And so they head to overtime, and the Packers proceed to go off on the least interesting 12-play game-winning drive. On this game-winning drive, there was a three-play stretch for the Packers through Three straight passes for zero yards. One of them was complete for zero yards. Two of them fell incomplete, and they only converted on third and 10 because there was a pass interference call. Later in the drive, they get bailed out again on another pass interference call, but in between then, the Packers commit another penalty themselves, as well as a holding penalty to wipe out an auspicious zero-yard run. Eventually, Aaron Rodgers finally, mercifully, throws a 16-yard touchdown pass to end things in overtime to win the game for the Packers that day. The final win of the Joe Philbin era. And I say that to point out in part how different things are now. Yes, things do not look great heading into this game against the Jets, but it was much worse the Packers the last time the Packers played the Jets. And even then there was still hope on the horizon. Head coach interviews were just starting around the time the Packers played played the Jets. Within a couple days after them beating the Jets, we learned that they had already interviewed Jim Caldwell and Chuck Pagano. I don't know how serious either of those two guys was as a contender for the job, but uh, the Packers interviewed them fairly early in the process. And from there, they would go through the process. Josh McDaniels interviews, Matt LaFleur interviews, a bunch of other guys interview as well. And um, they end up with Matt LaFleur and things get better. Things can get better for the 2022 Green Bay Packers. And the process towards getting better starts this Sunday. They've got some really significant things they need to improve, and there are some things that they can improve, and we'll see whether or not they are able to against the Jets wearing their own throwback uniforms, the Packers, on Sunday. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Should be should be entertaining, if nothing else. I will leave you with this. Even if things can get better, a lot of people are are pretty worried that they won't. Only 66% of voters in our poll this week thought the Packers were going to win against the New York Jets. That's roughly about where things were in the playoffs against the San Francisco 49ers in 2019, one of the only times the Packers had a polling result that low. People are not feeling optimistic. We'll see on Sunday whether or not we should be really worried going forward. That's all I've got for you in this episode. I appreciate you listening in. I appreciate it. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. That's going to help more people find the show. 
and get more people involved in this conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.